Okay, I'd like to get going. First, thank you all for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel, the events coordinator. So um, Fridays at UAA, free parking. Don't have to worry about parking. We um, have some light refreshments at the tables. Um, you're welcome to have whatever is there. The bookstore closes sharply at 6 o'clock, so we have to be out at the front door by 6. Please keep that in mind. Okay, thank you. Um, we have some books here at the table. If you're interested in purchasing a book, you could take a book, hold it, and before you exit, you could pay for it, okay, before 6 o'clock. Okay. Okay, right now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Meida Choba de Haas, who is an assistant professor of anthropology and Alaska Native Studies at UAA, who will introduce our guest speaker. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you all very much for coming today. Um, it is my great, great pleasure to introduce Dr. Benjamin Medley, who is an associate professor of history at UCLA and also the chair of the American Indian Studies program. We are pleased to be able to bring him up here when he just published uh, the book that we are presenting, and he's going to be talking about totally recasting the history of California, looking at all the various massacres and genocides that happened and haven't really been uh, plotted and in, uh, even included on the land and on the landscape. So all this information um, that he will be sharing with you, we will have a little bit of time at the end for questions and answers, and I would like to um, give it over to Ben. Thank you. Thank you very much for that warm welcome, Maida, and thank you, Rachel, for all the organizing that you did to put this event together. Uh, before we begin, I just want to say that some of the material that I'll be discussing this afternoon is quite disturbing. Uh, if you brought children, you might want to think about whether or not this is going to be appropriate for them, because this is some pretty rough material. I'd also like to say that if at any time during my presentation it becomes too much for you, if you'd just like to go out and get a breath of fresh air, if you need to clear your mind, I will be in no way offended, and I will, I will understand why you need to go. Um, I think there are a few more seats in the back for people who are looking for seats. And I thank all of you for coming out this afternoon, and so I'll begin. The ceremony continued until just before dawn. Illuminated by a central fire, celebrants moved together in ancient rhythms. The women's clamshell necklaces, as you see pictured here, clicking softly against each other. In between each woman was a male dancer, supporting them in their heavy regalia. Men were dressed as birds, deer, and other animals. In between dances, singers stopped to raise their heads skyward and sing songs of praise, both for the creation and for the renewal of the world, the renewal of the universe. Finally, celebrants stopped, and they walked away together arm in arm under a full moon. Passing through snug, round doorways, they passed into redwood plank houses, the traditional homes of Talawa people, the houses of Talawatan, the Talawa homeland. They slept near each other, between kith and kin, unaware that just seven and a half miles away, the local people of Crescent City on the Pacific coast were preparing to launch the newest installment of California's ever-expanding killing machine. 
Crescent City's Coast Rangers and Klamath Mounted Rangers, two state militia groups, had been well armed by the state. In January of 1854, the state's militia quartermaster general had sent the Klamath County judge 20 muskets and a thousand musket cartridges. By November, the Coast Rangers alone had 35 rifles, 3,000 percussion caps, 2,000 rifle ball cartridges, and four cutlasses. The Klamath Mounted Rangers, meanwhile, reached a top arsenal size of 50 rifles, all provided by the state. These heavily armed militiamen now prepared to do one thing and one thing only, kill California Indian people. In the pre-dawn hours of the last day of 1854, as many as 116 militiamen, accompanied by an unknown number of vigilantes, quietly surrounded the village and took up positions hidden in the brush. At daybreak, as men, women, children, and elders emerged from the redwood houses to begin their day, the vigilantes and the militiamen opened fire. They fired, said one of the participants, just as fast as they could reload their weapons. Some Talawa and other people tried to swim across nearby Lake Earl, but as they reached the middle of the lake, they came within range of the snipers who had already been placed on the opposite shore to receive them. When the shooting stopped, hundreds of Indian people were dead. Not more than five people survived this massacre. The attackers suffered a single casualty, and the state of California paid the militiamen for their work. Between the years 1846 and 1870, California's Indian population plunged from perhaps 150,000 people to not more than 30,000. Diseases, dislocation, exposure, and starvation caused many of these deaths. However, abduction, unfree labor, thank you. <laughs> However, abduction, unfree labor, mass death in incarceration on reservations, individual homicides, battles, and over 300 separate massacres also contributed to this population collapse. Indeed, this was a case of genocide. In the year 1948, the United Nations General Assembly gathered to vote on the law that you see here, and the General Assembly unanimously passed this resolution. Now, in order for a party to be convicted of genocide, the prosecutor must satisfy two conditions as set forth here in the law. First, the prosecution must prove intent, that is, intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And you notice, by the way, that motive does not figure in this law at all. Secondly, the prosecutor must prove that the defendant has committed one of the five genocidal acts listed here. In my study, I focus primarily on the first act, the act of killing, but also cover all of the other ones. The United Nations Genocide Convention thus provides an internationally recognized rubric for evaluating instances of genocide, including historical events that took place before 1948 and are therefore not subject to legal prosecution. 
Following the formulation of this new international treaty, a host of scholars began to reevaluate the conquest and colonization of California under United States rule. And by the year 2000, at least 20 scholars had deemed this to be a case of genocide. Still, relatively little has been written about genocide in California compared to genocide elsewhere. Building on previous scholarship, my new book, An American Genocide, is the first comprehensive, year-by-year, month-by-month, day-by-day recounting of this genocide, how it unfolded, and the crucial roles played by both the state of California and the United States federal government. As you can imagine, this is a topic that calls, I believe, for meticulous analysis, because the stakes are high. The stakes are high for California Indian people, for all U.S. citizens, and for scholars. But let's begin with how this affects scholarship. If some regions of the state of California, if not the state as a whole, were founded upon the deliberate attempt to physically exterminate the state's indigenous peoples, we need to seriously reconsider the way that we teach this and the way that we write about the history of California. Scholars will need to reevaluate current interpretive axioms and address new quandaries. For example, scholars will now need to reevaluate the assumption that in all cases, passive effects of colonization like disease were the leading causes of death, rather than active destruction, like murders and massacres. Exceptionalist interpretations of United States history also come into question as we begin to understand that what happened in California was indeed a case of genocide, comparable and comparable to other colonial genocides in world history. For example, the destruction of Tasmania's indigenous peoples in the early 19th century. A careful study of genocide in California will also assist scholars in re-examining the national and the hemispheric indigenous population catastrophe that took place earlier in our history. When scholars then document a particular genocide, it becomes necessary to evaluate what roles individuals and government leaders played and whether or not the event was part of a regional or recurring national pattern. Larger questions then followed. What tended to catalyze genocide? Who ordered the killings? Who carried them out? Why do we not know more about these events? Did democracy drive the process of mass murder? And ultimately, what role then did genocide play in the making of modern Canada, Mexico, United States, and other modern Western Hemisphere nations? Given its political, economic, psychological, and human health ramifications, the genocide question is particularly urgent for California's 150,000 indigenous people. Should they press for government apologies, reparations, or control of land where genocidal events took place? Will tribes marshal evidence of genocide in claims to seek federal recognition? How should California communities, California Indian communities, commemorate mass murder while at the same time emphasizing successful accommodation, survival, and cultural renewal. The psychological impacts related to genocide are also fraught. 
What happens when a tribal member learns that he or she is the descendant of both perpetrators and victims? How will California Indian people reconcile increased knowledge of genocide, often at the hands of employees of the United States government, with their intense tradition of historical patriotism? Finally, what role might acknowledgement have on issues of intergenerational historical trauma and that trauma's connection to very real present-day human health concerns, such as substance abuse, elder abuse, spousal abuse, and the catastrophically high rate of suicide among California Indian youth today. The question of genocide in California also poses explosive questions for all U.S. citizens. Should state or federal government officials tender public apologies, as Presidents Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush did in the 1980s, for the forcible internment of over, over 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War, many of them Californians? Should federal officials offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion that has now been paid out to these victims of incarceration and their heirs? Might California officials decrease their cut through state compacts of California Indian gaming revenues, which in the most recent study in 2014 topped $7.3 billion? A better understanding of genocide in California might also impact the federal government's dealings with the over 70, 70 separate California Indian communities that today are seeking federal recognition. The question of commemoration is then closely linked. Will the non-Indian public tolerate or support the kinds of days of commemoration and monuments that we have in California today to remember the Holocaust or the Armenian Genocide? Will genocides against California Indians join these kinds of events in public school curricula or public discourse? These questions are very important, but they can be only addressed in very limited ways without a comprehensive understanding of the relationships and interactions between natives and newcomers during the first 30 years of California's rule by the United States. Sporadic mass killings of California Indians punctuated the initial years of U.S. rule in California, but it was James Marshall's 1848 gold strike that precipitated a local genocide. Oregon men moving south from that territory, played a leading role in increasing violence against California Indians. They arrived having recently been defeated in the Cayuse War in northern Oregon, and they routinely shot Indian people on sight as they marched south into California. As importantly, unlike people who had lived under Mexican rule in California, these newcomers did not have relationships with indigenous people as spouses, or as employees. And their journals and their letters tell us that they saw California Indian people essentially as obstacles to the rapid acquisition of wealth. In 1849, Oregonian attacks on California Indians increased both in frequency and in lethality, particularly in the northern mines, <clears throat> or in the central mines, excuse me, the homelands of Nisenan and northern Miwok people. <coughs> that would be in these areas here.
We know from people writing letters and journals during this period that they witnessed <coughs> massacres of Indian miners, they saw massacres of surrendered Indian people, they saw scalpings, and they saw decapitations. And these histories are reflected in the oral histories of both Miwok and Mishnan communities. We will probably never know how many indigenous peoples died in this very early phase of the gold rush before the advent of major newspapers in California. But what was clear to contemporary observers was the exterminatory nature of these killings, both in their intent to destroy Indian communities and in their genocidal impact, and that whole villages were sometimes exterminated. Now, the slaying of two white ranchers near Clear Lake, about 150 miles north of San Francisco, in December of 1849, marked the turning point toward a larger genocide. In response to this double homicide, vigilantes and United States Army regular soldiers killed as many as 1,000 California Indian people or more between late December 1849 and early May 1850. Vigilantes first murdered and massacred large numbers of indigenous people, primarily farm workers, in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys, the areas now famous for their wine production. Then after authorities captured some of these vigilantes, California's Supreme Court, in its very first decision, decided to release all of the perpetrators on bail and never sought to actually prosecute them. Meanwhile, the United States Army also sought to avenge the killing of the two white ranchers near Clear Lake. In an article titled Horrible Slaughter of Indians, one newspaper described a massacre committed by the United States Army on an island in the northernmost portion of Clear Lake, using information provided directly by a United States Army captain. And I quote, They poured in a destructive fire indiscriminately upon men, women, and children. They fell as grass before the sweep of the scythe. Little or no resistance was encountered, and the work of butchery was of but short duration. Neither sex nor age was spared. It was the fearful work of extermination order, fearfully obeyed. Hundreds seemed to die in this atrocity. Estimates suggest that anywhere from 400 to 800 or more people were killed on this single afternoon. Other killings followed, and officers involved were not censured. In fact, all of them were promoted. A new factor was at work. Large-scale, extended vigilante and United States Army killing campaigns tolerated by both the state and the federal government. As the gold rush continued, immigrants surged into California from around the world. Before the gold rush, there were perhaps 13 or 14,000 non-Indians in the state. But by the year 1860, Census takers counted over 360,000. This was the largest mass migration in 19th century U.S. history. These newcomers arrived primarily in search of wealth. But in seeking to access gold, eat, dress themselves, acquire labor, 
and satisfy sexual desires, immigrants placed immense pressure on California Indian communities. These demands triggered an explosion in ranching, hunting, mining, and slave raiding. These activities generated shockwaves that had a devastating impact. California's new leaders now magnified that impact. During the period of martial law, United States Army officers in charge of governing the military territory quickly transformed California Indians to second-class subjects with few or no rights. California's 1849 Constitution then made it nearly impossible for Indians to vote. And several months later, when the first elected legislature of California met, they quickly banned Indians from voting, banned Indians from providing testimony against whites in criminal and civil cases, and banned Indians from serving as jurors. The following year, they banned Indians from serving as lawyers or judges. In sum, these laws barred California Indians from participation in and protection by the state's legal system. And as a result, abduction played a major role in the California Indian catastrophe. In 1850, legislators passed what is known as an Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. Rarely has an official act been so misnamed. This act legalized white custody of Indian minors and Indian prisoner leasing, while allowing courts and juries to summarily reject related Indian testimony. Indians could thus be forced into unpaid work on trumped-up charges for indeterminate periods of time. The picture that we're looking at here is something that I found in the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley, across the bay from San Francisco. This is actually an advertisement uh, for the sale of a 16-year-old Southern California Indian female at the price of a pound of gunpowder and a bottle of brandy. That we don't know. I know nothing about the provenance of that. It's just a single sheet in a folder that was there. No sense of exactly where it came from, but I assume from Southern California. In the year 1860, California state legislators now expanded the 1850 Act to legalize the indenture of any Indian or Indians, whether little or big, prisoners of war, and this triggered a new boom in Indian slave raiding. Now, Indian slave raiding and kidnapping was particularly destructive to California Indian peoples, not only because the raids often involved the summary execution of all adult men and often all adult women and all elders, but also because people were dispersed. They were scattered all over the state, away from each other, thus prohibiting people from reproducing. Some Indians were also treated as absolutely disposable laborers. One lawyer in Los Angeles, where I live, recalled, L.A. had its slave mart, and thousands of honest, useful people were absolutely destroyed in this way. Between 1850 and 1870, Los Angeles's Indian population crashed from 3,693 to just 219. Escape was one way that California Indian people resisted servitude, but whites sometimes responded with lethal force. For example, the Lassic Wailaki woman Lucy Young, pictured here, escaped servitude multiple times. 
once she actually chopped through a chain wrapped around her ankle that chained her to a cast iron stove. Lucy Young recollected, and I quote, Young woman been stole by white folk people. Come back. Shot through lights and liver. Front skin hang down like apron. She tie up with cotton dress. Never die, neither. Others were less fortunate. After one California Indian woman fled her, quote, lord and master with his Indian boy, in 1858, whites massacred her and 14 other people in their village. Two years later, a rancher became so incensed when his Indian servant visited his family half a mile away from his cabin that he, quote, slaughtered the whole family, six people, boy and all. Now, despite such reports, which were surprisingly commonplace in California's media and in official government reports, almost all law enforcement officials failed to act, and policymakers failed to intervene. Congress, meanwhile, made California Indian people particularly vulnerable to immigration's blast. In 1851 and 1852, Indian agents, the three men you see uh, sitting in the front row in this gold-framed photograph, successfully signed 18 separate treaties with 119 separate California Indian leaders, allocating them 7,488,000 acres of land in California for reservations. However, United States senators repudiated all of these treaties. Instead, in 1853, Congress authorized a few temporary military reservations, not to exceed 25,000 acres each, and conferred, and this is crucial, no land titles to California Indian people. They also conferred them no legal recognition. The results were fourfold. First, no reservations were patented and jurisdiction over them was left uncertain. Second, California Indian people did not become explicit legal wards of the federal government as they were elsewhere in the United States. Third, because jurisdiction on these reservations remained uncertain, confusion and conflict between and among state and federal officials reigned in these places. Finally, United States Army Major General John Wool's 1857 interpretation of California reservations legal status denied them army protection and I quote until these reservations are perfected the United States troops have no right to exclude whites from entering trespassing on or occupying these reserves or even to, pre to prevent them from taking women and children away federal officials thus made California Indian people particularly vulnerable to kidnapping, slavery, assault, homicide, and mass murder. The establishment of the state of California's militia system now marked the rise of a killing machine. Between the years 1850 and 1861, 3,414 militiamen enrolled in two dozen separate volunteer state militia operations. These operations killed at least 1,342 California Indian people. However, their impact transcended these numbers. Militiamen served as a widely publicized state endorsement of Indian killing, communicating an unofficial grant of impunity for Indian killing and inspiring 
over 6,400 killings by vigilantes during this period. Now, lest you think that all of this was the work of some rogue operators, it's quite clear that intent to destroy was only thinly veiled. In January of 1851, California's very first elected state governor, this man, Peter Burnett, declared, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. Soon thereafter, state legislators put the power of the purse behind state militia operations against Indians. In February, legislators voted to borrow $500,000, a great deal of money in the 1850s, for both past and future Indian hunting state militia operations. Meanwhile, the state began building up a substantial arsenal of weapons and ammunition donated to them by the United States Army. Then, in May of 1852, having spent the first half million dollars that they had raised, the state passed a $600,000 bond measure to support additional operations, even as vigilante campaigns multiplied. What we're looking at here is actually one of these bonds. This is in the denomination of $250, and what is missing at the bottom here would be the bond coupons. So if you would bring the coupon into the bank, and they would give you your 7% interest payment until, the, until you used up all of the coupons on the bottom, and then they would give you, at the end, the full payout of the $250. These bonds came in a variety of different denominations, making it possible both for individual investors to purchase them, but also something like this, and $250 is probably an institutional investor like a bank or an insurance company. For some California Indian leaders, the pattern of exterminatory killings was now abundantly clear. After murderous attacks by militiamen in the year 1854, a Modoc leader announced at a tribal council, and I quote, We have lived here in peace, but we cannot get along with these white people. They come and they kill my people for nothing. Not only my men, they kill my children and your wives. He concluded, they will hunt us down worse than we hunt the deer or the antelope. The Sinkion woman Sally Bell, pictured here, provided a rare California Indian eyewitness account of a massacre that took place in her homeland in the mid-1850s. Bell remembered... And I quote, About ten o'clock in the morning, some white men came. They killed my grandfather, and my mother, and my father. I saw them do it. They killed my baby sister, and they cut her heart out, and they threw it in the brush, where I ran and hid. My little sister was a baby, just crawling around. I didn't know what to do. So scared, I just hid there for a long time, with my little sister's heart in my hand. It was a terrifying time to be a California Indian person. The United States Congress now endorsed such killing. In 1854, our Congress, the Congress of the United States, allocated over $924,000 to reimburse the state of California for its state militia campaigns against California Indians. Predictably, a new surge of militia and vigilante violence followed. 
even as state leaders perfected the killing machine. This man pictured here, William C. Kibbe, now published a book on tactics and distributed to all of his militia officers throughout the state, helping to make them even more efficient killers. That Christmas, Christmas of 1856, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis sent an additional crate of officers' manuals to be distributed among the state militia leaders. Then in 1857, having spent the first $1.1 million already, state legislators appropriated an additional $410,000 for more militia operations. Then, in 1861, a day after South Carolina's secession from the Union, Congress appropriated an additional $400,000 to help California pay for the expenses of nine new militia expeditions that had killed at least 766 California Indian people. Congressmen thus indirectly sanctioned the mass murder of California Indians. Although California Indian people often resisted, civilians and officials carried out large forced removal operations, as was then common in the United States. For example, in the year 1856, vigilantes massacred 55 people, mostly men, in the process of forcibly removing one village to the Mendocino Reservation in northwestern California. The Lake Yakuts woman, Yoimut, recollected that during the forced removal of her community to the Fresno Reservation in California's Central Valley, soldiers killed a dozen Indians and shot stragglers along the way. Likewise, the known Lackey man, Andrew Freeman, explained in his memoir, and I quote, that when they took the Indians over to Round Valley, they drove them like stock, and they shot the old people who could not make the trip. They would shoot down children who were getting tired and resting along the way. Once they arrived at California's federal reservations, California Indians often encountered institutionalized malnutrition and lethal starvation. The Concow leader, Tomayanem, recollected that after volunteers had forcibly removed his people to Mendocino Reservation, and I quote, we were very hungry, and the Concows began to die very fast. Other reservations were little better. In about 1860, Tomayanem led his community south to the Round Valley Reservation, where he found that, and I quote, there was even less to eat. Indeed, in the year 1860, officials at Round Valley Reservation, the single largest reservation in California, provided 480 to 910 calories per day to each working reservation Indian person. And by 1862, daily reservation rations there fell to just 160 to 310 calories per person per day. <clears throat> Further diminishing these already inadequate rations, those who did not work were not fed. The reservation possessed hundreds of cattle by this time. In fact, they had over 750 head in 1862. But the Indians were allowed no meat, according to official dictates. If some California reservation Indians died of institutionalized starvation, malnutrition weakened the immune systems of others, making them more susceptible to a host of lethal diseases. Starvation and malnutrition predictably depressed fecundity while increasing both stillbirths and miscarriages. Some reservation officials also used California Indian people as 
disposable laborers, often with lethal results. For example, according to one colonist, about 300 reservation Indians died during the winter of 1857 to 1858, the effects of packing them through the mountains in the snow and mud. Each packed 55 pounds, if able, and few had any clothing to wear. At California reservations, willful neglect took an untold number of lives. Federal officials also killed large numbers of California Indian people in much more direct ways. During the United States Civil War, 15,725 white men in California joined the Union Army, and the majority of them were not sent east to the great battlefields of the Civil War. In fact, none of them were. The majority of them stayed in California to do, as you guessed, the work of Indian killing. Many of them already had experience as militia officers or as militia enlisted men, and whole units of militia simply went right into the Union Army donning the blue uniforms. As U.S. troops, these so-called California volunteers replaced relatively small, short-term state militia operations with much larger much more extended U.S. Army operations. The United States government now fielded the most substantial campaigns yet seen against California Indian people. But the genocide was now largely a federal project. U.S. Army forces killed substantial numbers. The very first California Volunteers Army campaign in early 1862 killed at least 120 California Indian people in less than two weeks. Hundreds more would die in succeeding campaigns directed by generals and officers like this man, the West Point-trained Colonel Henry M. Black. California volunteers also killed prisoners en masse on multiple occasions. United States Cavalry Captain Moses McLaughlin proudly reported how in 1863, and I quote, I had all the bucks collected together, and 35 were either shot or sabered. Not one escaped. McLaughlin concluded with a statement that smacks of genocidal intent. They will soon all be killed off or driven so far into the desert wastes that they will perish by absolute hunger. The U.S. Army continued killing California Indians through the 1860s and only concluded large-scale operations with the beheading of four surrendered Modoc leaders in 1873. The California Indian catastrophe fits the two-part legal definition set forth in the UN Genocide Convention. Perpetrators demonstrated in both word and deed their intent to destroy. They committed examples of all five genocidal acts listed in the convention. Killing occurred in more than 370 separate massacres, as well as hundreds of smaller killings, individual homicides, and executions. Sources indicate that from 1846 to 1873, vigilantes, militiamen, and U.S. soldiers killed a minimum of 9,492 to 16,094 California Indian people, and probably many, many more. By way of contrast, sources indicate that California Indians killed fewer than 1,500 non-Indian individuals during this same period. Other acts of genocide proliferated too. Many rapes and beatings occurred. And these meet the convention's definition of causing serious bodily harm to victims on the basis of their group identity 
and with the intent to physically destroy the group. A sustained military and civilian policy of demolishing California Indian villages as well as their food stores and then driving survivors into inhospitable alpine regions also amounted to deliberately creating conditions of life intended to destroy the group. Some Office of Indian, some Office of Indian Affairs officials administering federal Indian reservations in California committed the same genocidal crime. Further, because malnutrition and exposure predictably lowered fertility and increased the number of miscarriages and stillbirths, some state and federal decision makers also appear guilty of imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Finally, the state of California slave raiders and federal officials were all involved in forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. 3,000 to 4,000 California Indian children, at least, were subject to such forcible transfers. By breaking up families and communities, forced removals also constituted imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. In effect, the state legalized abduction and enslavement of Indian minors, and this, too, was a genocidal crime. Sufficient evidence thus exists to designate the California Indian catastrophe genocide, according to the UN definition. Elected California officials were the primary architects of annihilation. They created the laws, they built the killing machine, and they initially funded it. But the U.S. Army also played a crucial role in the genocide, first creating the exclusionary legal system, setting genocidal precedents, helping to set up the killing machine, participating in the killing, and finally taking control of it. In total, the United States Army soldiers killed at least 1,688 to 3,741 California Indians during this period. Now, if state legislators were the primary architects of genocide, federal officials also helped to lay the groundwork, became the final arbiters of its design, and ultimately paid for most of its official execution. In total, state and federal authorities allocated over $1.7 million to the hunting and killing of California Indians during this period. By 1863, the United States Congress had given California more than $1 million to support its militia operations. And of course, by 1863, the United States Army was in control of the killing machine and paying for it. Like California Indian people, Native Americans across the country and throughout this hemisphere, from the Arctic Sea to Patagonia, suffered catastrophic population declines following the arrival of newcomers. Before contacts, perhaps five to seven million or more Native American individuals occupied the lower 48 states. But by 1900, federal census takers counted fewer than 250,000 survivors. What caused this catastrophe? Disease, colonialism, war, but was something more sinister also to blame? Abad academics have long debated whether or not Native Americans, or any groups of them, suffered genocide during the conquest and colonization of the Americas. The question of genocide in United States history remains an important, hotly debated subject. Given that the near obliteration of this nation's indigenous peoples remains one of the formative events in United States history. 
As in many other Western Hemisphere countries, the Native American population cataclysm here played a foundational role in facilitating the conquest and the colonization of the millions of square miles, the real estate and the vast cornucopia of natural resources upon which the modern United States was built. Thus, how we explain the Native American population catastrophe directly informs how we understand the making of these United States. Beyond interpretations of U.S. history, the stakes include issues of public acknowledgement, apology, reparations, control of and access to natural resources, land, sovereignty, and ultimately national character. Despite these high stakes, the question remains unresolved, in part because of the deadlocked American genocide debate. Two factors polarize this debate. The first is that only some participants use the UN Genocide Convention as their definition. Even though 147 countries have signed or are parties to it, a growing body of case law supports it, and it was and remains the only definitive legal definition. In fact, even as we sit here in this room, the UN Genocide Convention is being used to prosecute two cases in the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and also I think, one case in the Extraordinary Criminal Courts of Cambodia, which is both of these uh, supported by the UN. At the same time that there's a dispute over the definition, there's also a dispute over the range and scope of what time period and what geography should be considered. Some scholars, for example, Ward Churchill, consider the genocide to have begun in 1492 to continue into this present moment in which we sit right now and to extend from Patagonia to the Arctic and everywhere in between. So you can see that without an agreed-upon definition and a robust set of detailed case studies addressing particular indigenous peoples at particular times and places, it is very difficult to reach comprehensive conclusions. Now, the direct and deliberate killing of California Indian people between 1846 and 1873 was more lethal and more sustained than anywhere else in the history of the United States or its colonial antecedents. Yet there remains a pressing need for additional detailed studies addressing other regions and peoples, not only in the United States, but throughout the Western Hemisphere. Perhaps some of you will help to write them. The variables present in the California genocide did not recur in precisely the same combination or at the same intensities in the histories of all other native peoples in this hemisphere. In some other cases, disease was an overwhelming cause of mortalities. Both state and federal or, or colonial and metropolitan decision makers may not have been complicit in every case. Other Indian peoples employed different survival and resistance strategies. Finally, in other cases, colonizers may have committed fewer or no genocidal crimes, while the causes and rates of death differed. We need to build on our existing body of knowledge with a new body of research in order to understand the full picture, not only for the United States and North America, but for the Western Hemisphere as a whole. What I hope is that this book, in part, presents a workable methodology for how such future studies may be conducted, not only in the Americas, but also in regions beyond. 
The UN Genocide Convention provides us with a standardized, internationally recognized interpretive rubric and a coherent legal definition that may be consistently applied. This book suggests that scholars should rigorously examine every case in consistent terms. Just as important, we should consider each on a case-by-case -case or region-by-region -region basis, not only in a place like California, but nationally and internationally, to create a scholarly precision in our use of what is undoubtedly an explosive term, and to seriously consider the balance between factors like disease on the one hand and the five genocidal crimes enumerated in the Convention on the other. Thus, without claiming any kind of universality for the California case, this book, I hope, points the field toward clear and consistent definitional standards and applications. Detailed case studies are a very important part of genocide studies, a field often dominated and torn apart by fierce definitional debates. Because case studies provide a powerful tool with which not only to understand genocide, but to combat its repetition in the future. Native American people experienced and responded to colonialism in thousands, maybe millions, of different ways. Rigorously examining this range of cases using the UN Genocide Convention to evaluate both genocidal intent and genocidal acts will move the discussion of genocide in the United States and the Western Hemisphere toward clarity, unbraiding each region's story from the tapestry of Native American history and bringing each nation's history into sharper relief will create a clearer, more vivid portrait of Native American experiences, of United States history, and of the history of this Western Hemisphere. Such investigations will be painful, but they will help all of us, both Native and non-Native, to make more accurate sense of our past and ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I'd like to open it up for questions. I have a microphone here because I know we want to hear anything if you're asking questions.